Welcome to episode 19, LGBTQ, Back to Basics, by Beck G. Cohen, Licensed Alcohol and Drug Counselor. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hey everyone, this is Beck G. Cohen, owner of BGC Consulting and also associate consultant at the Romaine Collective. I want to thank La Fuente Hollywood for allowing me to share my knowledge today on this podcast about LGBTQ back to basics. It's integral for us as clinicians, as people who are in the helping field to have the basics down on LGBTQ plus individuals, because if we don't have a baseline um, or a groundwork, then how are we ever to really work with this community? I've been working with this community for over the past 10 years um, in different levels of treatment and treatment modalities. I also work with families, uh, adolescents, and uh, from a mentorship level, and from a consulting level. Um, so today we're going to talk about different ways um, in which we can help our LGBTQ clients. And we're going to go starting from the beginning, like what is LGBTQ? And I think the best way to start this off is by understanding, you know, what is tolerance versus acceptance versus affirmative? And I think that the word affirmative gets thrown around a lot when we're talking nowadays. Uh, affirmative therapy, af- ther- affirmative treatment, affirmative clinicians. Uh, and what's really happening is that individuals are seeking these key words out and they're going into treatment centers, they're going into medical facilities, they're seeing therapists that actually are not affirmative um, they're actually just accepting. So, uh, I like to break it down in a couple ways where, you know, before 2018, even some places now, um, we have the word tolerance. And, uh, when we talk about tolerance, we're talking about, you know, you can be here as long as, as long as you don't come out of the closet, as long as you keep it quiet with your individual therapist and not in group, uh, we'll tolerate you here. And hopefully most facilities and most places are, are away from that, um, nowadays, but I've still come upon places that have had, you know, individuals or, or that have gone through treatment, um, where they haven't been allowed to be themselves and they haven't been allowed to share, who they love and what gender identity they identify as, um, which can, which can be and is, uh, traumatic. And so it perpetuates the trauma of the marginalized LGBT community when seeking help, they cannot even be accepted or affirmed. I think in 2018, we are now at the acceptance phase of um, treatment where we say things like, you can be here even if you're LGBT, even if you're transgender, even if, and I want you to listen to those words because language matters and language matters a lot. And I'm going to talk about that today, um, quite a bit, but so acceptance says you can be here even if. Now, if we take affirmative therapy and we take affirmative um, treatment modalities and use the word affirmative in the way that it's supposed to, we can say you can be here because you are. So see how acceptance was. You can be here even if and affirmative is affirmative therapy is you can be here because you are. Those are things that, um, really need to be addressed. And, um, because we're actually not being affirmative when we're just being accepting. So I want to switch us, my hope, my hope and my goals um, for every treatment facility, for every medical facility, is that people can go in 
to a facility and get affirmed for who they are because they are. So that's just a little, little side note there. Um, not side note, maybe a, maybe a soapbox, but, uh, you'll, I'll get on a couple soapboxes today. I hope it doesn't bother you. If not, you could just turn off this podcast. Um, so I believe that my belief is that, um, gender and sexuality are the foundation of a person. And I'm going to break these down a little bit today, um, into five pieces. Now you can go and you can hear different, um, speakers on LGBTQ and, and sometimes people have six different pieces of foundation. Some people have a hundred pieces of a foundation. I don't want to overwhelm today, so I'm just going to keep it at five. And those pieces, um, I'm going to break down individually, but those, uh, pieces of, of the foundation are natal sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, gender expression, and sexual behavior. And those five things, um, really when a client is coming in to see us, those are the things we should be asking about. We should be asking about it on our paperwork. We should be asking on it, um, in our biopsych socials. And we as clinicians, we as nurses, we as individuals in the helping field really need to be comfortable asking the questions because if we're not asking the questions, then our clients aren't get you know, aren't giving us the proper answer. And, um, if we're uncomfortable, they're uncomfortable. So this is all about getting familiar. And, um, when we do these one-on-one pieces, it's about getting familiar with the words, the, um, some of the nuances, things like that. Um, hopefully in future podcasts, we'll get into a deeper dive of each of these, um, of the LGBTQ plus population and really kind of get some, um, deeper work in when talking about these, each of these specific, um, identities, because today it's just a broad stroke. And when we do a broad stroke, sometimes people are like, yep, that's it. We're done. I've gotten trained in LGBTQ and that's not it at all. We cannot be affirmative by just a 101, um, but we have to start somewhere. So let's get to it. Natal sex. Natal sex is, by definition, the sex a person is assigned at birth. Now, who assigns sex, right? It's the doctor. The doctor assigns the sex at birth. And how do they assign sex at birth? Based on genitalia. And there are three identities that someone can be assigned at birth. And that is they can be assigned female, male, or intersex. Now we know, or hopefully we know, um, you know, how genitalia looks and what those things, you know, what determines how we raise, you know, a child is the unfortunate aspect is we raise a child based on these, (laughs) this genitalia. Now, what do we ask a pregnant person when they walk in the, you know, when they walk in the door, what are you having male or female? We're already putting a treatment plan together, um, with our clients when they walk in the door by what we see. And we're already planning the lives of these little children by what a sonogram says. So it's really important to make sure that we know this and that we also know that, you know, young boys aren't held as much as young girls, just basically based on genitalia, right? When someone knows what they're having and like gender, the quote unquote gender reveal parties are like the bane of my existence, I'll say. And I, there's no way that someday I just want them all banned because, um, I think that it just sets this little one up for disaster and expectations. Um, when we know that the person is having a girl, let's say we paint the room pink, we call her a princess, we, you know, have these expectations that are socialized in our society. And 
Same thing with when we know it's a boy. Um, you know, we, we set, we set them up. Like I say, we don't hold them as much. We rough and tumble. We expect them to play sports and we have these hopes and dreams. These parents have these hopes and dreams. And, and when they don't turn out that way, there's shame. There's shame for that little one. There's shame for the parents too. So it's really important to, um, know that when we're talking about natal sex, we're not talking about gender identity. We're talking about, you know, genitalia. And when we talk about the intersex community, which is a whole nother hour long podcast to talk about the intersex community, because the intersex community are, are struggling and they are fighting for their lives because when someone is determined intersex at birth, most of the time it is up to the doctor who tells the parents, um, well, I will just make this little person a girl or a boy and a surgery is done without consent and we have little ones who are growing up not knowing who they are, not feeling in their bodies. And again, this is, I want to not conflate this with transgender. This is intersex. Um, but intersex, there's so many different types of ways to be intersex. And I suggest that you go to intersex.org to look that up because again, I only have 50 minutes. So, so I don't want to dive into it, but, um, just know that, that intersex people are really, really fighting for their lives right now. Um, because of the, the lack of consent when they're born, that they have these surgeries, they have these preverbal traumas and this, this, these surgical traumas, um, in their lives. And so we need to support them the best way that we can, um, and really start to understand what they're going through. So now we got natal sex, um, which is a sex, uh, person is, is assigned at birth. Uh, the next, um, piece on our foundations, uh, is gender identity and gender identity, uh, is, is basically, you know, an individual's internal sense of being male, female, both, neither, or something else. And, um, since gender identity is, is an internal sense of one's gender, um, it's not necessarily visible to others. So we don't know someone's gender identity, by the way they look when they're walking down the street. And we're going to get into expression a little bit later. But I think that one thing that we definitely miss when it comes to gender identity is asking about it. So I want to you to think about your paperwork of your facility or your office when someone walks in the door. Um, are we putting two check boxes um, around when we ask people if they're male or female? And that's like the most basic, um, remedied way we can start to build an affirming practice is by taking those boxes away because gender identity is so fluid for so many people. And, uh, it's really important that we start to invite all people in to our practices in our, in our facilities. So by putting two boxes next to each other and saying, are you male or female? What if I don't fit into that box, right? What if I don't fit into that identity? Um, am, is my anxiety going to go up? Is my, are my walls going to go up? Um, for sure they are. And I'll tell you from even my own personal experience of walking into doctor's office, dentist's office, um, to gyms, when I have to mark an X on a male or female box, it just makes me feel unseen. And so, um, and it's a real easy fix. And not all people are like me. Um, not all people will, you know, X out the boxes and write in their, their gender identity. Um, we're talking about people who are coming early into treatment or early into, um, their first therapy appointment, you know, they're like little raw nerves walking around. So it's really important to like open up that, that process for them and, and open up that, that piece that is really, truly, um, one's own internal identity. Now, 
there are so many gender identities and I, you know, I would say for every person in the world, there's a gender identity. So I could like read off some of them. Um, and I will miss, um, someone's gender identity. I think, you know, obviously, you know, someone's gender identity is male or female, transgender, like those three, um, and gender non-binary, like those four, I would say are the, the most common gender identities, but there's a whole spectrum of gender identities. And, um, we won't know unless we ask someone, like, what is your gender identity? And most people, I would say 98% of people, um, and that's just, that's, that's not a known fact. It's just my, my experience will say male or female. And, um, but it's that 2%, that small percentage of people, um, who will finally actually be, feel like they're they're being seen when we ask them their gender identity and um you might be surprised yourself as as a clinician as a nurse when we ask those questions that people will open up and they'll they'll actually share who they are um the more comfortable we get so again um with gender identity there's so many under the trans umbrella um and the you know, gender, I wouldn't, I not want to say it's a spectrum because it's more like a 3D, um, entity because people's gender identity is so, um, that's so diverse and so personal. So, um, it's really important to, to ask those things when we're talking about electronic medical records. If, if you have them, I think it's, um, I like to bring up, um, my Facebook story. So, um, when I was prior to getting married, um, my gender identity on Facebook was, sorry about that ding, was, um, my gender identity on Facebook was female. And even though I identified as non-binary at the time, there wasn't a space for that. Um, so I decided, you know, the analytics were, were sending me all of these, uh, ads for dresses and did he get you the right ring, things like that. And if anyone, you know, knows me, knows that I don't wear dresses. So, um, so I decided to change, you know, my gender identity to male. And, um, a couple things happened. Um, my friends who are LGBT advocates were, were so stoked and they're like, you're finally out as trans. You're finally out as male. I'm so excited for you. And then, you know, the other phone call came from my mom who, uh, you know, was like, what's going on? So one thing to note is, either not be friends with your mom on Facebook or know that, um, when you change your gender identity, it shows up. So, um, but nowadays, like that was, you know, years ago, but probably around five years ago, uh, something really great happened on Facebook and you can actually have a drop down menu of 50 to 80 gender identities. I think you can actually type it in now of what your gender identity is on Facebook, which is so amazing. And so when people come to me with their electronic medical records and say, well, Beck, you know, there's, there's no way we can change this. I'm like, well, Facebook changed it. There are ways. And most, um, electronic medical record systems, um, actually do have a place for trans people now. And if they're not, then they're far behind. And so you need to switch because there are many that actually do include that identity in there and they'll change pronouns, um, which we'll talk about in a minute. But that, you know, I think that it's really important to have those gender identities on your electronic medical records just to make things seamless, um, in treatment. Because if, if I, if I have, if my pronouns are different than my legal name and my, my gender that's on my ID, um, and people around me, um, who are, you know, techs or anything like that, that see my old name or my, um, and not my chosen name and see my old gender identity and not my, my, my true gender identity, um, I'm going to be misgendered a lot, which will, um, 
eventually lead to decompensation of my clients because we know, according to the trans lifeline um, survey, that misgendering is actually the number one reason why individuals um, have suicidal ideation. And it's like the easiest thing for us to fix as uh, clinicians and as um, people who are helping people and friends too, uh, and family members. Uh, pronouns is so easy for us to change um, when someone asks us. Um, the best way to think about it is be respectful and be loving of others. So um, a gender identity that gets brought up a lot, especially when I'm working with young people and adolescents these days um, and young adults, is that uh, the identity of non-binary and, and uh, many of you have heard it. Uh, it could be you could hear it NB non-binary, and it's a gender identity that's not defined within the male or female bin- binary. Either lies within or outside of it. It's definitely its own entity. And non-binary identity can look so different for so many people. Um, just because someone is non-binary doesn't mean that they use they/them pronouns. Um, Exclusively, some non-binary people use binary pronouns of male and female. Um, and how do we do that? Like, how do we know? Well, we just ask. And the more comfortable, again, that we get with these concepts, the more comfortable it is going to be to ask people what their pronouns are. Um, and, and it's great, like, sometimes to lead with that. Like, I could say, hey, my name is Beck. I use he, him pronouns. What's your name? What pronouns do you use? Very easy and very simple. It doesn't have to be a big deal. Um, and again, it's just about respecting people's identities and being um, the best, most affirming person we can be in that moment with them. Um, so there's another term that I want to talk about too is cisgender. You may hear me say it um, a couple of times during um, the next 30 minutes and Cisgender uh, really it it derives from uh, Latin cis, which means you know on the side on this side. So cisgender is someone who identifies their gender identity with the natal sex that they were assigned at birth. So if someone is cisgender, um, they were assigned male at birth and they live as male. Um, it's uh, the opposite of transgender and. What this does is like, why, why do we need the word cisgender? Well, most of the time people are, um, other trans, the term transgender or transgender people, they other. So it's like people are trans and then the rest of us are normal, right? And that's not true. We know that. And so this levels the playing field when we say there are cisgender people and transgender people. Those, you know, and, and, non-binary people like we have like so everyone has like a gender identity right and um and so in that we get to speak from a place of equity i think and that that we get to say i'm a cisgender female and you're a transgender male and that's that's who we are right um or i'm a cisgender uh straight white female and you're a you know transgender person of color that identifies as pansexual right so we can have these identifiers um that help us to to really see each other on eye to eye in a lot of ways because um there's so many there's so much um disparity between trans people and and the community around them. So it's rather than looking down upon, it's looking, you know, as equals. And it's really important. It's really important to equalize those relationships. Um, because these individuals that are coming into your office who, um, are not cisgender, um, have been dealing with a lot when they come into your office. So, um, it's really important to try to, you know, um, to try to make make the playing field equal. Um, I've talked a lot about language already, but I think um, language matters and pronouns matter. And the way we 
use pronouns with people, the way we talk about individuals, the way we talk about ourselves when it in regards to our sexual and gender identity is really important um, because it's so easy. It's so easy to fix. Um, you know, we have been shifting language for a very long time. If we haven't been, we'd still be grunting at each other. So um, I've talked to psychiatrists who will refuse to use um, correct pronouns with individuals, um, with the pronouns that they, you know, how they identify and what they want to be used. And um, people with tons of education will are, uh, will refuse to use people's pronouns. And I, I have to think about it and I have to think like, wow, those those people are really set in their ways, but there's something else going on. There's a reason why people won't respect other people's pronouns. And um, if you're unwilling to use pronouns um, or shift pronouns in treatment um, or in your practice, then you maybe you shouldn't be working with um, certain populations. And uh, and that's okay too, but always have a referral out. Uh one of the things is, uh, if I never have to talk about bathrooms again in my whole career, I'll be okay. I think, um, I've talked about bathrooms, uh, many, many times over the last eight years. And, uh, I want to give you a little bit of, um, just a little bit of a, uh, hint here is that, that trans people have been using bathrooms forever. And you have probably used the bathroom of a trans person before. So why now? So what is this all about? And I really love using um, a quote by Laverne Cox and talks about the anti-trans bathroom bills. And, you know, these bills are about whether or not trans people have a right to exist in a public space. Um, and it puts the attention on something that has been going on for ages. Um, but now, um, it's a, it's a backlash on this. I, I believe on these, you know, being out, um, in the media and, you know, trans people have been pushed into the spotlight, whether consensually or not, um, over the last four years, um, specifically really intensely. And, so, of course, there's going to be this backlash. And uh, what I want to say to you is, what do your bathrooms look like? What is your policy in your uh, about your bathrooms in your facility? Um, are people allowed to use the bathrooms in which they identify? If they're not, why not? And if you have single-stall bathrooms um, that are gendered, why are they gendered? Nothing worse than walking into a single stall locked bathroom and it has like a men's sign or a women's sign. And it's not just about trans people. It's about, um, people who have to help, you know, their elderly parents or people who may need help in the bathroom that they can both go into those bathrooms and help them. Um, it's about access. And really what this is about for trans people is if I can't use a bathroom in, in school, in the movie theater, in an airport, in, you know, then I don't have, I can't exist. I can't live my life if I can't use a bathroom outside of my own home. Um, you know, gender neutral bathrooms, we have them in our own houses. So it's pretty easy to, to, use them and also allowing people to use the bathrooms that they identify. Um, this really comes into play. Uh, you know, we see it a lot for, for trans women, trans women using women's bathrooms, um, that because they're women and so they should be using women's bathrooms, uh, and the issues that lie upon that. But there have been no accounts of trans women perpetrating in any bathrooms. And so, but we use these, these fears, um, media uses these fears, religion uses these fears, you know, um, news sources uses these fears, um, that, that trans people are going to perpetrate on others. And, um, we know that's not true. The statistics show us that it's not true. So really when we, so what I would like you to do in your own facility is really looking at, you know, 
how, what are our bathroom policies? How do we, you know, what does that look like for us? Um, how are we addressing it? And because eventually someone might have a problem in one of your bathrooms. If you have an open bathroom policy, someone might have a problem. How are you going to address it? And saying, this is our policy and everyone has a right to use the bathroom. Um, because not in all states, um, it's only certain cities, really, not in all states do people have um, bathroom rights. Um, so if you're in a, in a state that doesn't have, um, you know, doesn't have the right for people to go use the bathroom in which they identify, then we have to think about that. So anyway, bathrooms, never want to talk about them again, but I'll keep talking about them until we can all go to the bathroom. (laughs) Um, let's get on to sexual orientation. So we did gender identity, sexual orientation, um, is an individual's physical and or emotional attraction to a partner, um, with specific genders and or sex. Um, so it's really about, um, the LGBTQ plus in our community, right? Um, so it is, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, pansexual, asexual, demisexual. Again, sexual orientation is so diverse. And unless we're asking people sexual orientation, we don't really know. Um, and we can't just assume by someone walking in the door what they look like um, and who they're attracted to. And uh, so it's really important to ask these questions. And Again, like this is just an overview, but I think it's really, really important to talk about um, sexual orientation and, you know, what that means for someone, even straight people, because being straight is a sexual orientation, being heterosexual is a sexual orientation. Most of the time, we only talk about sex and gender when it comes to LGBTQ people. And that's a huge issue, especially in treatment, um, because even in heterosexual relationships and cisgender people, you know, there's assumptions that are made. And really, we can't make assumptions. So I really, really ask (laughs) everyone Um, even if they say that they're straight and heterosexual, um, I say, what does that mean for you? What does that look like in your life? What does heterosexuality look like in your life? What does being a cisgender man look like in your life? Because we know, and we're well aware, especially, especially in these days and times that, you know, masculinity, um, can look very toxic and, and femininity can also look toxic. So, what does that mean for people and what is that and how do we help because we have young boys who are you know who are lost in this world and we have individuals who um really need to start addressing um what it really means to be a man and a woman or non-binary what does it mean for them and so I like asking the question. It usually leaves people stumped, especially straight people, <laughs> um, because um, for the most part, again, a broad stroke, but for the most part, LGBTQ people are consistently thinking about their gender and sexual orientation, not because they want to, but because they have to, um, for safety reasons, for um, for all sorts of reasons, for health reasons, all those things. So, um, So I ask everyone. And I suggest that you do too. Um, one of the words, <laughs> one of the sexual orientations or gender orientations, um, but one of the words really can sometimes strike a nerve with some people. And it may strike a nerve with, with some of you, but the word queer. Um, and when I talk about the word queer, there's so many different definitions, I think, that are um, that are there. and 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 I think... Again, asking when someone comes in and they say, I'm queer, I say, what does that mean for you? Because it can mean, you know, I'm attracted to people of many genders. I'm not fitting around cultural norms, around sexuality or gender identity or expression. Um, queer can mean I'm not heterosexual. Um, it can also be like a revolutionary anti-assimilation, like challenging of the status quo. It can be a political statement. So 
I really have to ask that. And if I am over the age of, let's say, well, I don't want to give an age, but if I'm like 45 to 50 years old, you know, the word queer, or if I, if geographically I grew up somewhere, um, that maybe wasn't so accepting of, of gay people using the word queer was used in, in a derogatory way. So, um, I'll be even in a group of, of gay men over the age of 50 and I use the word queer and I see trauma. So it's really important to like, um, to address that and talk about it and share, you know, um, you know, what, what that could mean. And, and also the trauma that, that, that word holds because it, it can hold a lot of, of weight. So really important to um, get used to saying it because if I have a young person who's coming in and saying that they're queer and I'm uncomfortable saying the word queer, um, there's going to be a disconnect there. And my young person is going to know that. So um, if you're uncomfortable with it, my suggestion is going into um, a mirror and, and saying the word queer over and over and over again until you start to get comfortable with it. Um, this is all about supervision. This is all about, um, we look at these things like LGBTQ issues, but really if I turn the scope inward, these are like our own issues. These are our issues as facilitators, um, with our own bias, our own vulnerabilities, um, our own lack of knowledge, um, around these groups of people. Um, so we have to do the work ourselves. Um, and the same thing goes with, um, I'm going to just kind of shift back to, to, uh, they, them pronouns, uh, because I, I hear that a lot that, well, I'm not going to use they, them pronouns because of grammar and, um, which we know that, you know, up until the 1800s, they, them, theirs was actually the singular they, them, theirs was used much more, um, until it became gendered language. So, we know it was used in the past and, and we refuse to use it now. My suggestion, it's all about practice. Again, um, language is all about practice. So if you have a pet at home, have your pet use they, them pronouns for a week so that you can get used to talking about your single pet as them, they, theirs. Uh, that's also another tool you can use. Now, Gender presentation, totally separate from uh, gender identity, uh, sexual orientation, natal sex, and it's the way in which someone outwardly expresses themselves to the world. And I'll say that like 100% of the time, we make assumptions by what people look like. <laughs> and when they're walking down the street, our brains are like, like molded to compartmentalize male, female. You have long hair, you're female. You're wearing a dress, you're female. You have short hair, you're male. You have a beard, you're male. And we already, again, when they walk in our doors, we're already setting their treatment plan up by just the way they look. We haven't even asked the questions yet of what is their gender identity or anything like that. So I want you to recognize or just notice the next time a new client comes in your doors, how you are assessing them just based on clothing alone and, and rep and, and presentation. Um, catch yourself, um, and see where that leads you. Uh, I'm, I'm also guilty of it myself. Like I don't, I don't pretend to be in any way, um, you know, I don't pretend that I, I don't, I don't make mistakes or that I, that I don't, you know, make assumptions on the way someone looks based on their gender identity. Like I have done it. It's, it's a hard, I do do it sometimes and it's really hard to stop myself, but I will say that, um, the more I learn, the more I, I work in this field, the more I identify in my own self and identity, the easier it is. Um, an example is I was working at a facility where a, um, I had a trans woman who would work, uh, or come into IOP at night and she would come in, um, fully dressed in a suit and tie and, uh, what I would consider male identified clothing and she would change in the bathroom, um, and go come into group and, you know, go by the name that she has chosen with female pronouns 
and through the three hours of group and then she would change right after group and go home. And as a young clinician, I was very, very aware of this. And I just was like, just accept yourself and just, you know, be who you are out in the world. And, um, and at that point she said back, like, I am who I am throughout the whole day, no matter what I put on these clothes, much like an actor does throughout the day um, in order to earn money. Because as we, as we know that trans people um, have a significantly harder time finding work and many individuals in 32 States, as a matter of fact, can be fired just for being trans. So, and that's without the institutionalized discrimination. That's just blanket. Like you can be fired. Um, but institutionally trans people are not getting hired, especially trans women and especially trans women of color are not getting hired, um, for work. And so, um, it was my own thought process of if you get to be your authentic self, if you get to be yourself, everything is better. And that's not true. That's not the world we live in. The world we live in tells us you need to be this way in order to earn money. And so in order to keep herself safe with a roof over her head and food on the table, she had to live her life as a quote unquote male in the world. And then she, at night she was able to be herself. So we have to understand that people can walk in our doors and if we don't ask their gender identity and who they are, um, from, from, the time they get there, like, and, and continue to explore that throughout treatment, um, we're missing a big piece of someone's life. And, you know, if I, if I have a, uh, what I would assume as a male walking in the door and I'm putting him to, into anger management and I'm, you know, putting him into, and then I'm putting that female into emotional regulation and I'm, I'm already gendering their treatment plan before they even say one word we are doing a disservice to our clients. Um, so those are things to think about. Those are things to, to address, um, right off the bat to, um, address in ourselves and, and really see that, like, you know, I can actually like be detrimental to someone's treatment by just my own assumptions. Um, and those are things that are learned. I'm not here to shame you. I'm not here to, you know, um, you can shame yourself later. I'm not here to do that. I'm here to, to really just speak the things that maybe we don't see. Um, another piece of, um, the foundation and the last piece of the foundational, um, pieces that I want to talk about today, um, is sexual and relational behavior. And we separate behavior from sexual orientation because um, just because someone is their sexual orientation is gay, their behavior may not be that, right? Their behavior may be heterosexual. Um, they may not be out in their relationship or they may be out in their relationship, but still are identifying as, you know, straight to the world, but are, are not, and they're actually gay. Um, and so it's really important to talk about, you know, someone's behavior, um, when it comes to relationships and sex. Again, this could be like a whole, this is like a whole nother podcast in and of itself. This is just like an overview. So how someone identifies their relationships with others, um, and the practice in which one engages. So, you know, People can, you know, have homosexual behaviors, heterosexual behaviors, bisexual behaviors, polyamorous. They can be celibate. Um, a lot of you may see MSM or WSW, you know, men who have sex with men and women who have sex with women, not necessarily identifying as gay. Men who have sex with men are not necessarily gay. There are a couple of reasons I can think of off the top of my head. Um, one being that uh, I work a lot in the field of addiction. I know a lot of straight men who've had sex with men for drugs um, or money or, you know, um, to survive and don't identify themselves as gay or bi. 
they identify themselves as straight. And I have had plenty of men in my life who've had sex with other men for sexual satisfaction, who identify as straight but have sex with men. Same thing with women. So I think it's really important to talk about. Um, I think we have these ideas, these labels that say, oh, if you if you're a man and you have sex with men, then you're gay. And that's not necessarily true. And we as as the helpers um, need to step back and really see our own bias in this in this identity because we've been flooded with it over and over. Um, another thing that um, we need to look at is, you know, monogamous, polyamorous, you know, open relationships. Um, a lot of the time, even even in gay world, um, you know, sometimes we just think of monogamy as as the only way to have a relationship. And if that's all we're asking upon intake, if that's all the relationships we're asking about um, or thinking about or assuming, we're missing a piece of of this person. And if we're talking about holistic care, we need to look at the whole picture. So, um we can't assume that someone is poly or um i'm sorry is monogamous if they're in a relationship we ask about other partners if they you know if there's open relationships if there's you know because also if we're working in like an addictive treatment you know model or if we're, we're in the mental health model and we want to bring people in to help um we need to bring all those auxiliaries in we need to be open to bringing all of the partners in to do that work to help um support this person because you know, this person is going to be leaving our treatment centers and going home and we need to know what the home life is like. So, um, it's really important to talk about those things. Uh, it's really important to talk about, um, you know, someone's, um, sexual and relational dynamics because, um, even if someone is into kink or, you know, um, or anything of that nature, we need to talk about it because, if I am someone who's getting sober and I don't know what my sexual world is going to look like sober or what sober sex is going to look like, I am scared and fearful and I don't have the tools to step back into that world um, in a healthy way. And if, if me as a clinician doesn't know about that world or don't know, if I don't know how to... Um, talk about those those sorts of things if maybe I don't have enough knowledge maybe I haven't read up enough on it um, I really suggest that you seek supervision there are a lot of therapists who are um, sex positive kink positive um, working uh, you know different dynamic relationships and so like seeking supervision from those therapists um i think that we need to work more collaboratively um rather than isolating ourselves as clinicians and saying oh i know what that's like i know i know how to um work with that clientele because we don't we don't know how to work with everyone um so if we're in the business of helping people then we need to really um really seek those outside resources to help that individual. So again, another um, soapbox that I'm on, but I'm, I'm getting in it now. So <laughs> um, we have about 10 minutes left and I, I want to address um, a really important topic um, that doesn't get brought up enough when we're talking about the LGBT community and that is intersectionality and uh, intersectionality is, you know, the interconnected nature of social categorizations, race, class, um, gender, as they apply to um, a given individual or group. Um, it's uh, regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. So that's like, obviously read from a, from a um, <laughs> dictionary. But I think, you know, when I have a client come in, um, in my experience, um, as a clinician, I was, um, because I'm trans, they, you know, people would just automatically send their transgender clients to me or they would send, um, or I would take them because I was like, I'm trans, bring me all the trans people. And, um, I'm not always the person. I mean, I like to be the person, don't get me wrong, but I'm not always the person, um, that's the best clinician for that 
for that person in front of me. Um, I can have a trans male, a white trans male, you know, late 30s and, you know, uh, to mid 40s and have the same background as me and sit across from me and have a totally different story because we are individuals. And so I don't necessarily just because they're trans, know them, right? And um, when you bring, if we're not talking about the intersectionality of people, if we're not bringing race and class and gender into the room with us, we're missing something. And the reason why we're not bringing it in is, is our own discomfort. So if I have a trans woman of color sitting across from me and I don't, you know, make it known and point out this, these, these intersections of the relationship dynamic, she knows them. She's already fully aware. I'm fully aware of the intersections of my own life when I'm sitting across from a cisgender therapist, um, that may not know my life. I'm very aware of that because I'm at a disadvantage, right? So, why not bring it into the room and into the conversation? There's nothing more frustrating when I hear a clinician um, or an institution that says, we're just in the business of helping people and we only see souls and we're colorblind. You're not. You're absolutely not colorblind. You're absolutely, we are already putting assumptions and biases on people when they walk into our space. So why not address them? Why not like get out in front of it and bring it into the room? Because at that point in time, we as clinicians get vulnerable in our own, in our own unknown, right? And so, um, and it's okay. It's okay to be human. It's okay to be comfortable. I mean, uncomfortable. Sorry. It's, it is okay to be comfortable, but it's okay to be uncomfortable in a room of maybe a dynamic that I don't know. Um, but it is my duty to do the research. Anything that's Googleable, Googleable, um, you should do. Uh, you know, if you want to know about trans surgeries, if you want to know about sexuality, Google it. Um, we do learn from our clients. I never say that we don't learn from our clients because we do. Uh, but we shouldn't have to ask the questions. We shouldn't have, they shouldn't be our teachers. Um, they should be the, they should be the teachers of themselves, right? They know themselves the best. They are the expert on themselves. I am not the expert. So, but I can't, I can't deny those intersections that are in my therapeutic space. Um, so it's really important to bring those in and it's always important to address. Um, it's also important to address, you know, the, the idea that, you know, um, of heteronormativity and cisnormativity and, you know, when a client walks into a space that's not made for them, it wasn't made for them ever. Um, when all the conversation is assumed and surrounding heterosexual and cisgender identities, um, there is a trauma of invisibility for LGBTQ people. Uh, and again, that's a whole nother talk around trauma, but, um, if I'm not seen, um, or feeling heard, then I'm going to shut down more and more. Um, you know, LGBTQ people are, are more likely to not talk about themselves in treatment. Um, and so I need to be really versed if I'm doing groups to recognize when relationships, um, or when, when someone is not talking or sharing their, their relationships or, um, sharing what's going on. And is it because, um, it's a group of, you know, 10 straight guys and one gay guy and the one gay guy is not really talking about his life um, because he doesn't feel comfortable. It's really, really important to um, address that. And also, you know, there's also the the idea of homonormativity and, and that, you know, addresses um, the problems of privilege that we see in the queer community that um, the intersection of white privilege and, um, you know, sexism and that, you know, what we see is it's okay if, you know, you gays are around as long as you look 
um, a certain way. As long as you lesbians, you you both have long hair and you wear dresses to your wedding. As long as you gay guys are, you know, really attractive and white and shop at, you know, uh, bought big box stores. You know, if you look at media and you look at what gay people look like um, in ads, you'll see how um, these ads are palatable um, to the general population. So, but that's not the people that are coming into treatment. That's not the community at large. The community at large is, is vivid and, um, diverse and body shapes and colors and, and just, and, and attitudes. It's, it's very much, um, an eclectic, um, (laughs) eclectic community if we're open if we open our eyes, um, to it. So it's really important to, to notice those things, um, that may be happening. Um, some basic community stats, uh, I think that you should know from SAMHSA, you know, 20 to 40% of LGBTQ, LGBTQ population struggle with substance use compared to 9% of the general population. LGBT people, um, are 200 times more likely to use tobacco and three times more likely to experience a mental health condition. These are, you know, outrageous stats. And when we get to the, the trans community, you know, 41% of respondents have attempted suicide in their lifetime, um, which is nearly nine times the attempted suicide rate in the U.S. population, which is 4.6. Um, you know, 33% of those who saw a healthcare provider had at least one negative experience related to being transgender, such as being verbally harassed or refused treatment because of their gender identity. You will not imagine how many trans people I've worked with over the years who have gone to a medical doctor seeking treatment for a sore throat, let's say, and the doctor says, I can't treat you because you're transgender. Um, and I mean, in my eyes, I'm just thinking, you know, what, what is having, you know, a throat ache have to do with being transgender, but it happens. And this is the traumas that, that your clients will be coming in with, you know, um, more than half have experienced some sort of intimate partner violence, um, in the trans community, you know, 1.8 times trans women of color, 1.8 times, um, at risk than cisgender women for violence and uh, murder. So, you know, we've already had in 2018, 16 trans women of color that we know of who have been murdered um, in the U.S. And um, these are mostly via stabbing, which, which assumes an intimate partner um, an intimate violent act. So, um, you know, the, the lifespan, the average lifespan of a trans woman of color is only 35 years old. And I mean, that's outrageous. And so it's like, what is our part in this? What is our part as clinicians, as, as, um, doctors, as nurses to, help these individuals who are seeking help feel affirmed in their identity and feel loved and connected and respected. Um, I feel like I'm coming to an end here, but if um, anyone ever has any questions, I'm uh, feel free to get a hold of me. My uh, email is Beck, B-E-C-K, at bgcbridge.com. And I'm glad to answer any questions that any of you have. And um, just wanted to thank uh, La Fuente Hollywood Treatment Center uh, again for allowing me to do this first podcast um, of the basics of the LGBT community. Um, they're really great treatment center, um, working specifically with the LGBTQ population, um, really doing deep dive into the nuances, um, that the community faces. And, um, I, again, am with the Romaine Collective, um, working with LGBTQ young people, um, and their families, helping them find, um, treatment and mentoring. And then also, um, running my own company, BGC Consulting, uh, where I train facilities um, 
and clinicians um, that seek to do better by the community. Thanks so much. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.